The sermon text reading this morning is Galatians 3, verse 29 through chapter 4, verse 3. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This is God's word. We're, um, I would say, about in the middle of a series on the book of Galatians. And uh, it's, a, it's a challenging book to preach because most everybody who's been in church for any length of time has probably at least heard something out of Galatians preached. And there are a lot of sound bites in Galatians, a lot of texts and passages that we find familiar because they were part of our memory when we were young and so on and so forth. And so we have a tendency to to think that we know the content of Galatians. Um, I have been uh, shocked at how little I know Galatians in my study and preparations uh, for these Sundays. So we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verse 29 through 4.11 this morning. And I just, by way of a quick reminder, uh, trying to tell you what's on Paul's mind at the time. He's writing to a group of people, a number of different churches, three or four churches in a a region called Galatia, which is in um, what we call modern-day Turkey. Uh, The vast majority of the people who are members of these churches are non-Jewish people, what we would call or what the Bible calls Gentiles. Uh, Like most of us in the room, not everybody, but most of us in the room uh, are are Gentiles, non-Jewish people. These people had come to faith in Christ as a relationship of Paul uh, visiting there. And uh, shortly after Paul's departure, a group of people came into those churches and told them, essentially, what Paul has taught you about the Lord Jesus is spot on, right and true and good and, and all those other things. But, but he left some things out. There are things that you need to do in order to have a relationship with God. There are are what we would call works, things that you need to do, food laws that you should pay attention to, things like the males in your family getting circumcised and, and partaking in some of the festivals and so on and so forth. And, and these people in Galatia were tempted to be led astray by this, uh, by this rhetoric. And, and the rhetoric was uh, pretty com- compulsive and, and it, was, it was compelling. And, and, and these people were having a hard time not buying into this kind of talk. And people throughout the ages, and, and today is nothing new, that, that mankind likes the idea that he can do something to earn the favor of God, whatever, whatever it is, you know, throwing money in the pot or, or giving an organ to the church or, or being great with your family or, you know, doing something to earn the favor of God. And so when Paul speaks... He's directing this letter to these Galatians, but it is very applicable to us in 2024. So Paul's primary concern is that the people he's writing to 
understand the role and relationship of what we call the Old Testament law to having a relationship with God and, and the role of faith or trust in what God has promised in relationship to a relationship with God. And, and Paul is very clear that, that you cannot believe that, that works on, on any level will get you any closer to God and that the only way to a relationship with God is putting faith and trust in what God has promised. And he's taken us all the way back thus far in the book to a man called Abraham uh, who believed God, took God at his word, trusted in what God has promised. And, and God says that faith that Abraham has is what has given him a relationship with me. And what he goes on to say is that what I promised Abraham was that ultimately there was going to come one who would be the ultimate sacrifice, who would bring you firmly, finally, and completely into relationship with me, not based on anything that you did, but based solely and entirely on what he has done. So we have this word promise throughout the book of Galatians. And when that word pops up, it is referring to the promises that God made to Abraham that would ultimately be fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to give you a picture of, of kind of where Paul's headspace is in this particular text. And it's a little depressing, to be frank with you. So look with me at chapter 11 of, I'm sorry, verse 11 of chapter 4. Paul says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I mean, it's very, very hard to see anything positive in that. Paul is genuinely afraid that the people that he loves and he's cared for and that he's worked for and that he's suffered with, that they have believed that Jesus was not enough and that his labor would have been in vain. I mean, I, I mean that's like a father looking at a child who's, 35 years old and saying, I'm afraid my parenting may have been in vain. Very few things could be more hopeless. And, and he's, he's worried about that for Christians throughout the ages. This is how important this issue is. You see? This is how important. It's not a peripheral issue. It can never be Jesus plus something. It has to be Jesus alone. Faith in God's promise alone and nothing else. And, and Paul is writing this, I'm afraid that I may have labored 
to you in vain. Well, what Paul does is he's going to continue his argument and he's going to present it very logically in in a way that the people in the first century would have understood and I think that we'll understand today. And, And the differences between what a son or an heir of a promise is and what a slave looks like. And in in doing that and describing those two different things, he's going to describe what what promise looks like and, and what law or works looks like. And he's going to continue to explain what the role of the Old Testament law was and is. But but his summary statement is found in chapter 3, verse 29, and, and our text is connected to that, and that's why I started there. We looked at this last week. Paul says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. He said that in the preceding verses. It doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, and it doesn't matter whether you're a slave or the slave's owner. If you belong to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, and you are heirs according to the promise. And I want you to remember that the promise that God made to Abraham, and Paul has outlined this through three chapters, that the promise that God made to Abraham is fulfilled, completed, and ended in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he refers to the promise, you have to think about Jesus. He's talking about the same thing. So if you belong to Jesus, you are an offspring of Abraham and heirs according to the promise, now verse 1 of chapter 4. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Now that's a strange comment because we don't have slavery in our country anymore. We don't relate to it very well. And if you're an heir of a father, how is it that you are just like a slave? And I'm here to try to explain that to you. And, and some of you have had this explained to you better than I can do it now. But let me just explain how this all works. In the first century, and quite frankly, as I've looked at it, it's not a whole lot different today. Now, now, in our culture in 2024, we're fond of throwing around, most of the time in a derogatory fashion, the word trust fund baby, okay? Now, now, if you're a trust fund baby, blessings on you. That's awesome. I mean, that really and truly, that is terrific. But let me explain how a trust, as I understand it, generally works. A, f- a father has money that he wants to pass on to his heir, Now, in the first century, the heir generally would have been the firstborn man. And and the firstborn male child was then responsible to take care of the rest of the family. But in our culture, you know, the heirs are as many children as you have, and you divvy it up to them the way you want to divvy it up to them. And it may change all the time. I had a grandmother who didn't give me anything, but, but she was always threatening the will to her children. I mean, it's like, really? That's how you're going to spend your days? But anyways, that, that's, that, that, was, that was granny. But um, so, so the father figures out who he's going to give the money to, and, and he puts it in a trust. 
And the father decides that at a particular age, the child is going to receive the money. Now, maybe 18, maybe 21. If he's smart, it's 55. You know, but, but the money is going to get doled out. And there may be other conditions associated with the trust being given to the heir. You know, for example, if you don't become a doctor, you don't inherit. If you don't marry this girl, you don't inherit. Now, I've heard of this. I've never seen it. But, but you could put those kinds of conditions on the trust. And then at the age designated and with the conditions being met, the money is then released to the heir. Now, this is no great you know, scientific wonder that I'm explaining to you. But up to the point that the conditions of the trust are met, the money is managed by a trustee, a guardian of the inheritance, if you will. And, and that individual is the one who makes sure that the conditions are met and the age is satisfied in order for the trust kid to inherit what the father has set aside for them. So from birth to whatever age the father stipulates, the, the money is held in trust and, and, and a child is looked over and, and managed, if you will, just like a slave. What I mean by that is the kid is going to inherit everything, but up until he inherits he doesn't enjoy the benefits of anything. You see what I mean? He's just like a servant in the house. And in the first century, the servant or the manager of the trust, so to speak, would have given the kid his education and would have made sure that he grew up to be sharp and, and did what he was told and, and met the conditions of the inheritance, so to speak. And then whenever the father stipulated the age, the kid instantly became the heir and received the benefits of everything. So when Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, verse 3, we also when we were children, were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. Now here I've got to do another little explanation that I hope won't take me as long. What are the elemental principles of the world? That an heir, who is also essentially being treated like a slave, is enslaved to I would love to give you an exam and say, all right, write down what the elemental principles of the world are. Well, there's about three categories of what is meant here in this text. The first are the basic things like ABCs. In other words, the most fundamental things that a child learns at the earliest age, one, two, three, four, five, A, B, C, D, E, papa, mama, food, Give me this, give me that, the basic essential things. But in the original, it goes beyond that. It carries with it the idea that these elemental principles of the world are under a natural order. Now, let me give you an example. 
I, I'm not a scientist. This is really mundane examples. I'm told there's 24 hours in a day, a few hours for light, a few hours for darkness, that there is a sun and there is a moon in the sky, and the movement on the sun and the, and the moon control things like the tides that come in and then they come out. And, and that there are 30 days, generally speaking, in a month, and that once a month there is a full moon. And these guiding principles of the universe, so to speak, along with the ABCs and the one, two, threes, are the elemental principles of the world. Now here's an interesting fact, and this is the third category of these elemental principles of the world that the law of God that was given in the Old Testament to a very large extent was based on the elemental principles of the earth, the world. Sacrifices were given weekly, monthly, annually, and they were based on the phases of the moon. You know, you had certain festivals on new moon, you had certain festivals on old moon, you had harvest festivals based on the time of year and, and so on and so forth. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So what Paul is saying here is that the guardians under which the people were, quote, enslaved until they became heirs included the law of God, which was based on the fundamental basic underlying principles that governed the universe, over which God was in complete control. It was not random in any way, you see what I'm saying. But, but they were under that tutelage, that guardianship of, of the law and the natural order of things until they became heirs, until they became heirs. They were enslaved to the natural principles of the world. Now, notice in the beginning of verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, when he says we, he's talking a few, about a few of the Galatians, but he's talking about the Jewish people as well. You see what I'm saying there? Now, look down with me at verse 8. At verse 8, he directs his attention solely to the Galatians, who, as I said at the outset, are Gentiles, right? non-Jewish people. And before they had a relationship with God, it says in verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature who are not gods. Now, before we go further, let me tell you how shocking this would have been to the Galatians and how offensive it would have been to the Jewish people who had come to Galatia to tell the Galatian churches they had to live under the Jewish law. Okay? That's what's going on. Now, Paul turns his attention, look at the uh, pronouns again. When you did not know God, not we, when you did not go and uh, know God, you were enslaved to those by nature who were not gods. In other words, you guys were rank pagans, and you went to temple, and when you went to temple, you sacrificed to idols, and you worshipped a big plethora of gods, and you did all kinds of different things in order to earn the favor of God, to have relationship with him. And what Paul is doing is comparing 
what the Galatians were as pagans to what the Jews were under the law. Do you see how offensive that would have been? Whoa! You have just gone off your rocker. The law is perfect. The law was given by God. The law was given to God's people. All of that is true. But what the pagans did before they had a relationship with God enslaved them as much as the law did to the Jews. In other words, neither the law of God that the Jewish people were under nor the religion that you guys were practicing before I met you ever gave you a relationship with God. Mind you, one was good, the law of God, and one was totally rank pagan, but neither of them gave you a relationship with God. But the Jewish law held the promise of an inheritance to come. You see what I'm saying? The Jewish law given by God promised that one was coming who would fulfill the law, and if you put your faith and trust in him, you would have a relationship with God. But they both acted the same you willfully put yourself under the guardianship of a pagan temple. The Jews willfully put themselves under the guardianship of God's law, but neither of them gave you relationship with God. Let's continue. But now, back to verse 8. Formerly you did not know God, but you were enslaved to those who that by nature were not gods. But now that you have become known by God, I'm sorry, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to once more become? How, how can you go back and observe days and months and seasons and years, says verse 10? Whether it's back to your old pagan world or whether it's go back under the authority of the law, why in the world would you do that? Because what the law was designed to do was point you to the inheritance that you would receive in Christ by faith. You see what I'm saying? And to go back to anything denies the inheritance you are to receive by the law being fulfilled. Why would you want to go back and act like a slave or act like a child who has not received his inheritance and put yourself under the authority of a law that cannot give you relationship with God? That's the point that Paul is making. And I hope that that's clear. I hope that I've kind of explained it so that you can understand. Now, if you're paying attention at all, you'll notice that I skip verses 4 through 7. That's because they're too hard to preach and I'm not going to preach them. No, I'm just kidding. Because 4 through 7 makes sense and culminates all of this. So this is what he said. You were enslaved as a child until the inheritance has come. That's the point, right? Right? 
verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now this is a very important point. At the fullness of time, when God set for his children to receive the inheritance, he sent his son, born of a woman, fully human, fully divine. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He came to fulfill the law. Now, fulfilling the law means partially completing the law, doing everything that God had told mankind to do that he knew they couldn't do. Jesus did perfectly. But more important, fulfill the law means he came to give the law its culmination. He is the one who came to deliver the inheritance to those who are becoming children of God. He is the one who came to say the trustee is no longer necessary. I have come to deliver the inheritance because the qualifications of the trust have been met. The time has come. I have fulfilled the law. I am the perfect sacrifice. I am the perfect high priest. I am the one who can give these children their inheritance. He continues, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. I'm not going to comment on Abba, Father, because too many people make it way too trite. But because you are sons, inheritors of what Christ has provided, the very Son, the very Spirit of my Son now indwells you. Now, we know that intellectually. And, and we have that reality ever in, before us in the scriptures. But the very Son of God, who was born into human flesh, who fulfilled the law and granted us our inheritance, it is his Spirit that dwells in us. You want to give that up by saying Jesus' death was not enough? That's what Paul is saying. No longer do you need the sacrificial system because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. No longer do you need a high priest because he is the high priest forever. And he has granted you the ability to call his father, Father. We go directly to the Father because of Christ. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. You see? That's the big deal. And people were saying, Jesus is good, but he's not enough. You need to earn it. You can't have a relationship with God unless you do X, Y, Z. The fundamental principles of the world, which were never designed to give man a relationship with God. They were designed to point to the one who would give us a relationship with God through his death and his resurrection. But it's terrifying. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I don't know, I don't believe, and I hope that that verse isn't speaking to anybody in this room. I really mean that. But it speaks to an awful lot of people we know. It speaks to an awful lot of people who think, I'm not bad enough to be judged by God. My good outweighs my bad. They have a checklist of things in their mind that they have done which they believe satisfies God. Nothing satisfies God but his son. And his son has given us our inheritance. And it is ours now. It's going to be revealed even more fully as time goes along. I mean, I, sorry, Beverly, but I, I think of Dan. You know. He sees the inheritance in its completeness. But it is ours now to enjoy and to labor and to love and to honor the one who has granted us our inheritance. And all praise belongs to him. Let me pray. Father, we cannot begin to comprehend the weight of our inheritance and the costliness of it, that we have been made children of Abraham by faith in the promise, and that promise is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus above all things. How foolish are we to think that your favor must be earned, that we are worthy of a relationship with you, The only thing that grants us our inheritance is the Lord Jesus Christ who dwells within those who have a relationship with you through him. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.